Hey folks, John here from Is for Alcoholic again. Today's conversation is with Austin Archer. He goes by your pal Archer on Instagram and TikTok. He is a performer, writer, musician, choreographer, all of the above and so much more. He was kind enough to talk with me via Zoom and we discussed finding faith for an atheist. We discussed creativity, both in active alcoholism and in sobriety, and which one is better, and you can guess which one it is. And it was an all-around awesome conversation with an awesome dude. I highly suggest you go find his stuff, listen to his music, and check out his content, uh, Austin Archer. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Austin Archer. So Austin, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate your time. Um, and um, one of the one of my favorite questions to ask people, and it's a question that I asked myself in in very early sobriety, trying to retrace and figure out, especially when you're when you start doing an inventory and going back and things, is like when was the first time I was affected by alcohol, or when was my my earliest memory, right? Not just my earliest drunk necessarily, not I got drunk at 16, but was there something earlier? And so that was part of my process. Did you find it to be something you, like, was it something you grew up with or was it something that came later on? <clears throat> That's a really interesting question. I, I don't think anyone's ever asked me that question because I've never, I, I think about it in terms of like when I started drinking, but that's also because I came from a home where uh, no one drank. Um, mm. I have a very, like my story is a little bit different than a lot of people that I hear in the rooms, just because uh, uh, a lot of people that I hear um, uh, that I talk to grew up with alcoholics in the home or had alcoholic aunts and uncles or just a whole family full of family events where everyone was getting drunk. And, and I grew up uh, Mormon in Utah and nobody drank, nobody in my neighborhood drank, nobody, none of my friends drank. Like, I, I didn't have friends who, who drank or used drugs till high school. And they were sort of the outliers of the group. They were sort of like the rebels of the group. The majority <laughs> of us, the majority of my group, my, my friend group uh, didn't do drugs or drink. And uh, we, I, I thought I was going to go through my whole life, not ever doing it. I think the earliest I can ever even remember, like realizing that it was a thing that people did is like when I was a kid, my brother, got busted. He, he was, uh, he was a student body officer at, at the high school that we went to. And uh, well, that he was in at the time I was like in elementary school mm -hmm. and he, over the summer he was on a cruise and he got, he was like with this, uh, this, this, this group and, the, and they, he was found drinking and uh, underage on the cruise ship. And it was like a big scandal at the school and they wanted him to be stripped of his student he was the student body president they wanted to like have him stripped of his title and my parents were like well what about all the football players that drink and stuff like mm. what, like what is and also it was during the summer not at a school event like what is this and but since we were in utah um it was a big <clears throat> scandalous thing and i just i think that sticks out to me as like the first time that i was like yeah. oh my brother drank beer and he got in trouble and it's a bad thing but i didn't yeah, didn't, you didn't grow up with it. No. Um, yeah. So I was born and raised in Las Vegas, Nevada. And what is unique about that place in the Mormon faith is it has the largest population of Mormons outside of Utah. Isn't it wild? Yes. You tell yes. people that and they don't believe you. You're like, <laughs> it, of all places. And there was the big, the big church up on the hill. Like we all saw it. You know, you could see it from certain parts. But and I remember a lot of the Mormon kids, you know, and one of the jokes was they wouldn't ever get, um, we like, you know, go to McDonald's for, for lunch and they wouldn't get Coca-Cola because they weren't allowed to have caffeine. And it was, <laughs> it was like a joke because they're, oh, they must be Mormon. They're drinking the orange soda or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And so, but it was always this, it was definitely something that I grew up with peripherally because it was like, they were the good kids and we were just kind of the degenerates right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> of las uh -huh. vegas yeah um but it's just it's just an interesting fact about that about las vegas about mormonism and you know it's just it's very very strange mormons adhere to that shit like mormons 
Mormons really take their dogma and their rules seriously. And there's a lot of religions that have rules that are just sort of, they almost function more like they would in a 12 step program where it's like, eh, it's a suggestion. You mm-hmm. should go to confession or something if you need to like it, you, but you don't need to, to be a, a Catholic in good standing show up on Christmas and Easter. And like, you're good. Mormons are not like that. Mormons really do it. They really <clears throat> yeah. you, you follow the rules. So, so was the, was the rule following of Mormonism growing up in Utah was your like first drinking did it be was it a backlash to that was there was there a certain level of rebellion how did you how did your drinking career start boy it was definitely dramatic it was uh you know it's like i had decided in my heart and head that i was never gonna have a drip of alcohol and a drop of alcohol in my life and and i really liked that idea that i was gonna go through (laughs) my whole life without ever drinking or using and and i went to a year of college and uh this was before the church changed the rule on when they send young men out out on missions they changed it to 18 because what was happening was too many of the young men were having the experience that i had they were going to college for a year and all it took was that one year away from home to be like oops i don't actually think i think this stuff and uh and and so that's what happened to me and um i was supposed to go on my mission when i was 19 after my first year of college and in that first year, I just, I, I had this massive tectonic shift of, of how I viewed the world and, and perspective shift. And, uh, and I wound up, I was hanging out with a lot of kids who were drinking and, and smoking weed and stuff like it was very college-y, but I would go to these parties and stay sober, but I was like in this environment. And, and what I noticed is like all of these people that I was hanging out with, a lot of them were like really good people, you know, like I, I felt very connected to them and I liked them. And that was very weird for me as a Mormon kid to be like, I, I feel very comfortable in this environment. And that sort of started my questioning of, of whether or not I was truly a, a believer of the Mormon church. And, and I, I stepped away kind of as an experimental thing and it wasn't long after I decided to stop going to, to weekly meetings, to weekly church meetings and, and try some other things that I was at this party. Um, we were in Washington, DC. I was a theater major and we were performing a play at the Kennedy Center and we were staying at the Watergate. Um, and uh, and uh, I, I remember that night, I, it was very dramatic. Like I, I was like with a friend, I was like, I, was like, I think I wanna drink tonight and he and I was like but I'm struggling I just don't know and he like took me into his hotel room and he was like okay let's talk about it and he was like is he's like do you think that drinking makes someone a bad person and I was like I don't think so and he's like do you think I'm a bad person I was like no and he was like so do you think that you would become a bad person automatically if you took a drink and I was like I guess not and he was like yeah like so what's what is like what's the worst that could happen tonight I was like I don't know. Like I never get it back. I never get to like, not. And he was like, okay, so the worst thing that happens is you have a new experience. And I was like, yeah, I guess, you know, and anyway, went out and I, my first shot was a uh, sour apple rum and uh, made me <laughs> gag like crazy. I was so shocked at the burn and like, I wasn't ready for like how much it was going to feel like I drank fire. And, um, and I got, I mean, I got shit faced that night, the very first night. And I never had a moderate phase of drinking. I never, mm. never was a moderate drinker. I was a, I was a drink till I pass out drinker for 11 years. It was just, it was just that from the, from the get go. I was off to the races. And this was, you said you were, you were 18 at this point or you were younger? 19. You were 19. 19. Yeah. And I went, um, went till I was 30. And um, in that time, what kind of, um, I guess my, my next question is kind of like, what are the, the steps of trouble do you get into? Is it just fun at first or is it trouble immediately? Definitely. It's, de- <laughs> it's definitely just fun and innocent and, and everyone in college is getting fucked up at parties. Right. Like it's, it's, it's weird if you go to a, a college party and you only have a beer or two. Like there, there are no normal drinkers at college parties. And so it's, it feels, it's hard to identify a problem when, when it's just what, what's going on. Like that's, 
And we, we didn't wait till the weekend to party. We partied every night. There was a party at my house that I lived at in college every night. I had a very fun college experience. We were, we were raging. We were, and we had the, the, we had the young bodies that could withstand the morning after oh, yes. and we could get right back into school and work and rehearsal. And it was a lot of fun. And uh, I, I got really into smoking weed. I loved marijuana. I just like it. Marijuana changed my life. Like it opened me up. I, I, I felt artistically and made me, it, it was helping with my anxiety. And it was like, it, I just, I just loved it. And um, I, I started using marijuana almost more than anything else. I smoked before mm-hmm. school. I smoked, smoked in between classes. I, I, I was like an all, it was a very alcoholic way of using um, marijuana. I was like, I had it all day long. I was an all or nothing kind of guy, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. I started drink. I remember the first time I, I, I drove drunk and it was probably like a year or two into my, my drinking career. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking like, this was another before and after moment, like, Oh my God. And I was doing it while I was drinking. I had a 40 ounce of beer and I had to like go to the store to get more beer for this party. And I took the 40 ounce with me. And I was like, I remember like driving and drinking it and being like, wow, I can't like this. Wow. This is so illegal and dangerous. And I got away with it. And there's nothing worse for an alcoholic than like getting away with bad behavior. Cause we'll just keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it till we don't, we don't get away with it. I've talked to some normies who have been like, I drove drunk once and it scared the shit out of me. And I'm like, Oh, I drove drunk probably 600 times, probably more than that, probably over a thousand times uh, in while I was out drinking. And I only got, pulled over twice and that was enough, you know, I mean, that was, mm-hmm. I, I got, I got busted once for possession of, of weed and I got a uh, DUI the other time mm-hmm. um, and uh, went to jail both times. And, uh, but that, that, that happened later in my twenties that they were so spread out. It wasn't like I like was getting like nailed every weekend, you know, right. I got away with a lot. And um, I also, I also learned pretty quickly, pretty early on in my, in my early twenties that like, if I was going to get so drunk so fast that I was going to throw up and stuff and be a problem for other people, they were going to, I would, I was going to get found out. So I learned pretty quickly that I needed to figure out how to drink in a way that wasn't obvious that I was as drunk as I was. And so I started figuring out like what, what needed to come first and, and how to sort of pace myself throughout the day. So I could be as drunk as I wanted, but still like have my wits about me sort of, and be able to speak coherently. And, and, um, and I, I was always shocked when I would encounter people uh, who were so sloppy. Cause I'd be like, you're going to get caught. Like people are going to know that you're a, a drunk and don't be, don't be a stupid alcoholic, be, yeah. be a smart, manageable, uh, controlled yeah. one like me. Yeah. Trick people. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to say like, oh, let's go. You know, it's great to get day drunk because it's it's kind of like being a spy. Nobody knows. And yeah. or so or so we think. Uh-huh. Right. Or so that's 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 our perception from the inside is that nobody can tell that we're drunk. Yeah. <clears throat> I've had uh, lots of people tell me in my life uh, uh, post drinking career that they're like, oh, I never knew. And so I, I, really? I am like I was a damn. Oh. I mean, I'm I'm an actor. That's what I do. And I'm a damn good liar. And, uh, and I was really good at, mm-hmm. I would, I would go meet up with friends for drinks and I would let, I told them after I got sober, I was like, yeah, you didn't know that I started three hours before I called you to meet up. And yeah. then I kept going after you left. Like I, right. the, those drinks that we had, the couple cocktails that we met up for, those were like drinks eight and nine of my day. And then I kept going 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 after you left. Like, I, but I, I just made it seem like. I was just meeting up for the first cocktail of the night like you were. And it was just a couple drinks, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, it's also, and I don't know if you've ever had this thought while doing that is they don't understand how much I need to enjoy the time that we're having together. I would always be like, well, I need a couple extra drinks. That's just my, my level of, of tolerance. Right. So if I'm going to go and have a good time, I'm going to have to pregame for a few hours before I go meet you up for a drink. You know. Yeah, it's interesting that we, we're so aware uh, <laughs> that there's a problem without being aware of it. The fact that we're hiding our behavior in that way, that it's like, well, people wouldn't get it if they actually knew how much I'm drinking. And 
I don't have a problem. I'm actually, it's actually quite manageable, but if they knew that I'm drinking a, a fifth or a, like, like a pint before I'm meeting up with them, um, they, they wouldn't get it. That, they can't handle the amount that I can handle. I have a different constitution than they have. And, but it's like, I'm obviously aware that the amount I'm drinking isn't okay because I'm going through all of this work and mental gymnastics to hide it from people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was perpetually my, uh, yeah, we're justifying it to ourselves in some way that because I am better, I am stronger. I am tougher than you are. I require more. Um, even though I have so much evidence to the contrary, I'm, (laughs) I'm constantly sick. I'm constantly unwell. I never feel good. I'm so I'm like, I have so much evidence to show that like, I'm not handling this amount very Mm -hmm. well, but in my head, I'm like, no, I can, I'm the one who can take it because I don't fall over. I don't get kicked out of places. Mm -hmm. I don't get into fights. Like I don't piss my pants that often. I only piss my pants sometimes. (laughs) That often. Yes, (laughs) it's true. It's Uh, true. Um, And I, there's a couple, I have a couple memories of a couple of hangovers that were probably alcohol poisoning. I'm almost certain they were, they were, I should have been in the hospital mm-hmm. and it never crossed my mind that I needed to stop. It was like, just get through this and you mm-hmm. can have another drink. Get right. some hair of the dog in you. Right. Get some, you know, the, the, some of my worst hangovers I, I cured with a, with a Sunday brunch. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I'd wake up on Sunday morning, like, holy shit, I can't believe I told those guys I'd go to brunch today. But you know what, if anything's going to make me feel better, it's going to be a pitcher of mimosas. So and lo and yeah, behold, for long enough. Uh-huh. Um, so in those 11 years, you say you got a DUI, you spent time in jail, and that mm-hmm. wasn't enough to, to spark any sort of interest or change in what was the, going on. The, the second time I went to jail, I remember thinking while I was in there, okay, this has mm-hmm. to be a before, this has to, this has to be a catalyst for change. And what it became was a catalyst for me to be more careful <laughs> and not get caught. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I told myself initially, I'm never driving drunk again, ever. And I probably kept that up for about six months and then went back to driving drunk. And when I would drive drunk, I just needed to make sure that I wasn't, that I, I had this rule called the two, the two rules rule, which is you're never allowed to break two rules at once while you're driving. Wow. So if you're ever driving drunk, you're already breaking one rule, which means you cannot break any other rules. So it was like high alert. Anytime I was driving um, fucked up, I had to make sure that I signaled for at least three seconds if I was changing lanes, that like I was like on my shit. And uh, so that, that, that was, that was the, that, that's what I thought uh, after going to jail for the second time was I need to be more careful, not okay. I got to do whatever I need to do to make sure I'm not back here ever again, because they do this thing. They did, I I did a prime for life course. I was offered AA and I didn't want to go to AA because I was afraid that it would work. And I was, I wasn't (laughs) ready to stop. And so I did a prime for life course instead. And they made us tally up. It's just like a, it's, it's an alternative that the court offers in certain states. They basically walk you through how dire and serious the decision you made that night was they made us tally up how expensive our bar tab was that night with all of the legal fees included. And I racked up like a $5,300 bar tab that night, you know, and that was at at a time when I had about $2,500 to my name uh, Mm. total, you know? And so it was like, that's expensive, expensive bar tab, Um, you know, but it wasn't enough. Yeah. And I I moved to New York city after my second time going, uh, going to jail. And that was a great place to be because I wasn't driving. I, there was just trains and cabs. And um, so I can bars stay up until four in the morning. It's a great town to be an alcoholic. If you don't know, it's a fantastic town uh, to, mm-hmm. to, to be in a 24 seven drunken. Um, it's also a great town to get sober in. there's really great meetings out there. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so what was the, um, what was the pivotal moment or was there one or was there many? Uh, how did you come to the idea that it was time to yeah. finally quit? Many, many over many years, um, many moments that should have been the moment uh, that weren't. Um, I, like I said, I think subconsciously I knew for the majority of my drinking years that there was a, that there was a problem that was going to have to be dealt with. There was a, a tab that was racking up and it was going to need to be paid at some point. 
Yeah. And um, I just was putting that off and putting that off as much as I possibly could. And the last few years of my drinking, it was getting, it was getting so bad that I was like regularly having like 4 a.m., 5 a.m. up on the rooftop of my apartment building in Brooklyn, standing on the edge being like, tonight's the night. I'm, I'm going to swan dive off the edge of the building and, and nose dive into the concrete. And, um, and I was like, seriously planning my suicide for a long time and 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 I was I mean I was getting saved regularly by something I didn't recognize I didn't know what it was but and I, I kind of thought I was going crazy I would be up on the rooftop and this voice would like emerge out of like my solar plexus and it would be like hey man um how about you go back inside and just lie down like and and then it would it would, I would go back downstairs and it would be like, let walk into the bathroom, please, for me, would you? And it would like look in the mirror and it would be like, hey, I just want you to let you know I love you. And I'm, I'm really happy that you, you stepped off that roof. And it was this voice that was like coming out of me that wasn't me. And I was so confused mm -hmm. and thought I was going crazy, but I was kind of grabbing onto it for dear life because it was that or jump off the building. Mm -hmm. And I recognize it now as like what I define as my higher self or higher energy, source energy, higher power, <laughs> God, whatever people want to call it. Mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah, I, I wanted to get sober for the last couple of years of my drinking really, really bad. And I kept, tr I kept just telling myself, that's it. I would wake up every morning and I would go, okay, we're officially done. That's it. And I would be able to put together sometimes two days. A lot of times I would be drinking by five on a day that I would wake up and say, that's it, we're done. Um, but sometimes I'd be able to put together 48 hours and feel like that was enough time to sort of detox. And, um, and I, I even had this phase where I was drinking like three times a week. And I like told all my friends that I was sober. I was like, I'm done. I was like, I don't even drink anymore. I drink like only every other day. It's crazy. Yeah. Like I, and I thought like I had done it. And, um, and yeah, I, it, it just through that phase of like trying really hard for two years to stop and being like, I can't fucking get a day. Like I can't, like I, I, it, it started becoming really clear that like I was going to need extra help. And, mm -hmm. um, every, it started, I, I went through a phase where every person that I met that was sober, I had a million questions for them. I wanted to know how they did it. And I was one of those atheists that like was determined to find a program that that had nothing to do with God. And, um, every person I talked to kept, kept 12 stepping me and kept trying to send me to a 12 step meeting. And I was like, I'm going to find someone who's got a good secular program and I'm going to go to that place. And, um, I met this girl on Tinder who, uh, uh I still talk to all the time. I call her every time I have a birthday. Um, but I, I told her, I said, Hey, I have a bottle of wine. Can I come over to your place and we can hang out? And she said, Oh, I don't drink. And I did my thing. I asked her all these questions. How, how, how'd you do that? And she goes, oh, I, I go to meetings. And she didn't, she used very clever language. She was very clever about her language. And I said, I said, okay, well, I, I want to go to one. And she said, okay, here's a place you can go tomorrow night at 7 p.m. I thought she was going to be there. I thought we were going to go on a date to this meeting. I showed up and it was a stag meeting called PAX in, on the Lower East Side of uh, Manhattan. And um, all, all dudes and uh, I walked in and I saw all the the signs on the wall and everything. And I was like, Oh, it's, it's she sent me to AA. And I was like pretty mad initially. Mm -hmm. And I sat down and like five minutes into the meeting, I was just like a, a puddle. I was just like bawling my eyes out. And um, it was just so incredibly clear that, that this is where I belonged. And I didn't like that. I didn't want to be a part of this group. And I was so bummed out that like, now I had to do this because I just was like, well, I, I can't lie to myself anymore. Like I, I know that this is my way out. And, um, the only way I can avoid it is by just, by just burying my, and like, once I know something, it's really, once I really know something on a spiritual level, it's really hard for me to like trick myself out of knowing it. And so, yeah. 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 Um, can you, so as an atheist, um, mm -hmm. which is something, you know, my co-host and I, Jerry, we, we often go back and forth with um, God and using that word and finding mm -hmm. a higher power and defining it. And is it vague? Is it specific? How do you, working a program that is 
basically however you want to define it it's a it's a spiritual program on a, on a on a big level how do you make that work with being an atheist boy i can't um i still haven't been able to find the language to explain to atheists who are active mm -hmm. uh alcoholics or users um <clears throat> why how i was mis mistaken um and why my conception of a 12-step program was not correct i the only way I, I know how to understand it is to do it and to be like oh i get it um it it's like something that i understand on a on a level that kind of goes outside of my ability to logically or intellectually explain and yeah. that's sort of the point is like mm -hmm. coming coming to a place where i'm i'm okay with not having concrete answers about what's going on when i pray or when i meditate all i need to know now i used to as an atheist who was out there use, using and stuff if it didn't make if i couldn't if you couldn't clearly define it to me and make it make sense i didn't want any part of it because you were just talking about mumbo jumbo and superstition and and magic men and wishes and stuff like that. I didn't want any, I didn't want anything to do with your, your weird fairy tale uh, folklore. Um, I wanted practical solutions. I believe that the 12 step program is a practical program. It is a pragmatic program. It's not a magic program. It's not come in and say these spells and we will cure you of the, uh, it's not that. There is a pragmatic use to meditation and prayer. It, does something to me physiologically. Now, whether or not as an atheist, I wanna say I'm placeboing my brain, I'm tricking my brain in whatever the fuck it is, all I care about is that it works. And, and that's, a, that's a shift in how my brain used to work to how it works right. now. It's like, my sobriety is so important to me. Having this in my life is so important to me that I no longer care about my my petty hangups over prayer i've been told by people to pray and initially i did it just because i was told to even though every time i did it i thought this is fucking stupid mm -hmm. um and, and pointless um but i was told by the people who i agreed to listen to to do it and the result to me is hard to argue with it i was promised a psychic shift i was promised freedom from my anxiety and my depression. I was promised um, an increased ability to problem solve in, in new ways. And I've gotten all of that and more. And mm -hmm. I, I don't know who or what I'm talking to when I pray. I just know that it works for yeah. me and that it works yeah. for other people. And, and, and I'll say this, my thought was that I was going to come into AA and they were all going to say, don't worry about the God stuff. Just come in here and come back. And then they were going to do what most religions do, which is they go, oh, don't worry about all the questions you have. Those will be answered. And then like three months into Scientology, they're like, so let me tell you about Xenu. And you're like, oh, what the fuck? Like you guys <laughs> said, don't worry about it. Now we're talking about Xenu and the galactic overlord that came. Like, I thought that that's what AA was going to do. I thought that like three months and they were going to go, Okay, so actually we believe that Bill W's ghost exists and was split into every chip. So you have a piece of Bill W's ghost in this chip. I thought it was gonna be some crazy shit like that. It's not, it's when they say a God of your understanding, they mean that shit. They mean you get to define that. And a lot of times for a lot of people that I meet in the program, they're like, I don't really have the most crystal clear conception of I have something that works for me intellectually, but on a pragmatic yeah. level, meditation and prayer sets me up for a more successful day. As a person with ADHD, as a restless, irritable, and discontent alcoholic, my mind races and wanders, and I have a, I have a hard time being present. Meditation <clears throat> and prayer helps ground me and set me up to have a more successful day, and I'm working on having a, a better life one day at a time. And those things, I, I see them as very practical tools. I don't see them as, as uh, me asking for help from a magic sky wizard. And because I ask in a particular way, he grants my wish. Like, I don't see it like that. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's there's, and I, anybody who's listened to the podcast before I've mentioned this, uh, there's a comedian by the name of Pete Holmes mm -hmm. and he's a sober dude. And he wrote a book called um, comedy sex God. And in there he talks about God and he's like trying to figure out what God is. And um, I think he came from a very strong Christian background who, that he, you know, rebuked, but um He's like he what his his understanding was God is a metaphor and a metaphor for what we don't know. So that's why we use that word. Yes. And so that word scares a lot of people because it has been made to scare a lot of people. Right. Yes. Both it in religion and outside of it's been abused. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's literally just a word, a piece of language so that you and I can talk about this thing that we don't understand. Right. Yep. Yep. And that's all we're doing here is going, I don't really understand it. It's this weird, vague concept. But like you said, it works for you. And I love that it's a pragmatic program that you're like, it does something for me. I don't care anymore how it works. It works. It's it's just if if you have a sickness, if you if you're sick with something that's killing you, that's going to kill you and you want to stay alive and someone comes to you and they say, drink this potion, it'll make you better. And you go, what's in it? And they go, just, it'll make you better. And you're so fixated on knowing the details of, of but you're looking, there's, there's millions of other people who are going, I drank it, man. And it fucking cured the thing. It just er eradicated it. And you're like, it's at a certain point, people will try anything to get better. And if you try the medicine and it doesn't work, then what's the worst that's going to happen? Like, okay, I tried it. It didn't work onto the next thing. I tried the medicine, it worked. And, uh, yeah. and, and, I, and, I, and I don't also think that it's that vague either. I, I genuinely feel like it makes sense that taking time to quiet yourself and humble yourself and, be, and, and spend some time acknowledging that you are not the center of the universe, that I once heard it said that this program works for people who believe in God. It works for people who don't believe in God. It doesn't work for people who think they are God. That like, mm. if you can just get used to the idea that you're not running the show, you're not in control of what happens to you or in your life, uh, all these things that you want to happen, that you, the job that you want to get, like you don't have control over the decisions that other people make. And you have so little control over what happens in your life. The only thing that you can do practically is try to, try to have some measure of control over how you react to things and how you, how you approach your life and meditation and prayer can set you up in a better way to do that, to be like, I'm setting an intention for my day that I want to be open and I want to be easy and light today. I want, when, when problems arise, I want to be able to pause and consider what my next move should be. I'm just trying to set up a better way of problem solving today than I used to have. I used to just sort of start the day and just whatever the fuck happens, happens. And I'm going to feel about it however I feel and let's go. And now I'm going to try to see if I can shift the way that I think about dealing with problems. And it's like, that's all it is. It's, it's simple stuff. That's you know? really, that's a great way to put it. And I had never thought about it. It's just a different way of solving the problems that, that arise. It's, it's problem solving skills that we learn. Well, and people think that you can do that mm. by just deciding that you can just kind of go, I decide today that I'm going to deal with problems in a different way. And it's like, well, if you've got 30 plus years of bad habits built up, just trying to flip that switch is a lot easier said than done. Mm -hmm. And prayer and meditation can be some of the tools that can help you slowly shift the gears into a new way of thinking. Like it's going to take some time and some effort. So repetition and going to meetings, service, phone calls, things like this that are helping you get outside of yourself and your normal way of doing things so that you can slowly but surely experience that psychic shift. Um, and, and naturally it wouldn't just happen because you just go, ah, fine. I'm just going to flip the switch. Like if it were that easy, everyone would do that. Right. Yeah. yeah. It, it does require some effort and, yeah. um, and concern on your part. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> one of the things too, that interests me about you 
and um, that I how I found you. I found you on TikTok. <laughs> You're not the first person I found on TikTok to be yeah. on this podcast, and probably not the last. Which I don't know why, as a 44 year old man, I'm on TikTok. But that's that's you know not. we're past that. We're past that judgment on the on the app in the yeah, age. Fuck that shit. <laughs> it's a place on the internet. Everyone right. of all ages is yeah. on the internet. Yeah. So yeah. I re- you you do um you perform you act you write you play music you do these um. I mean, everything is politically charged these days, so I, yeah. I I'm hesitant to even say that. But it's it is um it is certainly um politically uh charged content sometimes not always yeah. but um how how has all of that been from drinking and and creating you know being an artist and and doing it so like so how, well let me go back how long have you been sober three years three years Just okay had three years about a week ago uh, what's your, what date what's your date july 1st so two weeks Jul- ago yeah. Mine's July 6th. Congratulations. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So what'd you get on, on the 6th? I got six years. Six Fantastic. Years. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, so can you talk about creating drunk versus creating sober? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a thing that a lot of alcoholics and drug addicts think that they think that their booze and their drugs is the thing that makes them creative, that the, the place that they are the most open and free and creative from is when they're drinking. And you'll hear this from countless people that are like, I would love to stop, but I'm a writer and I, 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 I need scotch to write. Like I sit down with a glass of scotch or a glass of whiskey. I sit down with a bottle of wine. And by the time that thing's finished, I'm a writing machine. Like I'm open and I'm flowing. And hey, there may be something to that, that you're in a space where you're less inhibited and mm-hmm. you're, you know, um, but my experience, because I have, was the exact same way. I thought that that was my, that was my, my magic juice that made me uh, the artist that I was. My experience, and I've talked to lots of other artists in sobriety who feel the same way. Um, and I feel like I have lots of evidence to support this uh, is that I have thrived creatively in sobriety. Um, I, my, my creativity has been, I was worried about losing it and it's been taken up a whole six levels. Like it's, it, uh, not only have I thrived creatively, but I've thrived professionally because of my, uh, creative pursuits, like things that I've been trying to find success at for years have been successful. And in no small part, uh, due to the fact that like, they're better. Like I'm like, I'm putting more attention into the detail of things. Like I I look at stuff that I was making while I was drinking and it's lazy. Like the music Mm -hmm. that I was putting out was lazy. Mm -hmm. I couldn't be bothered to go beyond a certain level of effort for things that I, that I seemingly really wanted. I, I really wanted to be a successful musician. I really wanted, I started a a channel in 2015, making internet videos like making sketches kind of like I do on TikTok now. And you go back and look at them and like, they are lazily put together. Like I couldn't be bothered to try to like edit them a little sharper or just make them a little bit more watchable. They're just messy. Like I couldn't even get like a tripod. So the camera wasn't shaking. Like they're, they're, they're messy, lazy thing. They're not, it's not that they're not funny. Like there's some funny things in there. It's just that the attention to detail that I put into the stuff I make now is a lot higher. Like the craft is a lot higher. The technique is a lot higher. And, uh, and it's the same with my music. Like I wanted for years to do a studio album that sounded like a real album. And all I ever put out was like these really lo-fi bedroom tracks. And I sort of leaned into the fact that my, the music that I was releasing was really like loaded with imperfections and and mistakes. And there's a certain charm to that. There's a certain, Mm -hmm. um, texture to the, to the music that I used to release that I still really like, but like, I couldn't put out the kind of music I wanted to put out because I couldn't put in the time and the effort that, that was necessary. I couldn't stay sober long enough yeah. to like put in the put in the actual time that was necessary to create the kind of stuff I wanted to make. And creatively, I just feel like um, I'm in my prime. I feel like uh, I've never um, had the, the the level of output that I have right now, and um, I feel very much so taken care of. I feel very much so like I create out of the stream of life instead of like out of the stream of 
the, the fog and the chaos of, of drugs and alcohol. Like I don't force ideas. Like I, I very much so I, I utilize meditation and prayer in my creativity, <clears throat> knowing that like, as I approach today's tasks, whatever it is that I'm going to make, I don't need to force things. I don't need to push. I can like allow stuff to flow out and it will be there. I can trust that it, that I don't need extra help. I don't need, um, to second guess myself. Like I can trust that it, it that I've laid a foundation of practice to develop skills. And I can trust that like things will emerge if I yeah. just take the steps, but yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I, and, and not, not to put any pressure on you, but extremely prolific too. I mean, I just, I have noticed since I found you in the last several months, whatever it's been like, Oh, another one and another one. And like you said, the attention to detail. And I'm like, and as somebody who has experience editing and recording and writing, and I'm going, there's a lot of work here. And this is only, you know, a 40 second video, right? Or, you know, a minute, like I I understand them. It's a lot of work and you're like, wow, okay. Oh, how did you get those? How did you get that lettering in there? And that's really, you know, stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. so um, it's it's impressive to, to watch somebody who does it? And then for you to say, oh, I just celebrated, you know, three years sobriety. And I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I see. Wow. Yeah. Because that's, that's where the focus comes from. I'll tell you, I, when I was drinking, I started noticing. So, so a lot of people who drink and use drugs have all these uh, heroes um, mm. like Hemingway. And, uh, you know, I, I, I want to be Ernest Hemingway. I want to be Kurt Cobain. I want to be Elliot Smith. I want to like make art out of this tortured place where I, you know, which is so funny. All of our heroes are people who killed themselves uh, or, or died very young. Um, I started noticing in the last few years of my drinking, there were all these people that I was admiring, all of these people that I, whose art I was really looking up to. And it's because I was getting older. I was past the age of 27 and I was past the age of when all these guys died and um, it was starting to get like less cute to be out at the bars and uh, mm. it, it was start starting you, you, you God, when you start getting into your thirties and stuff drinking, it's like you, everyone at the bar is getting younger and younger and you start feeling more and more like a pariah and more and more like a weirdo and, uh, and it's less cool and, and sexy. And all of a sudden I was admiring all these older people who were making really cool podcasts or really cool music and all of them were sober. They were all people that I was like, oh shit, that person's sober too. That per- and, like, and I would like listen to them in an interview on a podcast and they'd be like, oh yeah, I'm sober. Like I'm five years sober. And I'd be like, everyone that I fucking like is sober. And so I started being like, okay, well, it's, it actually sounds like it's a shift from, I used to think that in order to be a good artist, I had to have a bad addiction and kill myself right. at 27. Right. And now I think in order to be a good adult artist, if I'm going to live into my forties and fifties and sixties making art, I need to get sober. So. But just to be sustainable, because we, we know that, you know, drinking is not, I mean, we have learned that drinking is not sustainable. I mean, we kind of, and like you, we talked about earlier, we always knew there was a problem and it always came up, but it was, it was never a problem to solve permanently. Right. It was always just until the next drunk. Yeah. Figure out some band-aids. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just, I, I always love to, to hear other people who create, you know, for, for a living, um, who do it, you know, professionally and, and do it a lot and really love it. Like that, that sobriety is what gave me the, the inspiration to continue because, and also you're, you're right. Like I look at stuff that I did and I'm going, that's terrible, John. I mean, some of it's entertaining, right. But you're like, this could have been so sharp and you just were too busy getting drunk. And so to, and to see the stuff that you do now. Um, I made videos drunk <laughs> and put them out and I go and I'm like, and I thought no one could tell. And I go back and watch and I'm like, you can't tell that I'm drunk in the video, but like the reason the video is so fucking sloppy is cause I, I was drunk and I thought it was hilarious that night. And then mm-hmm. I posted it and I never deleted it. I just was like, yep, that's one of my videos is just this stupid idea I had walking home from the bar. Like, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I used to do that a lot too with writing where I would just get as drunk as possible and then thinking that some 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 magic was just going to happen and then going back and looking through the pages and just so, a lot of the stuff would just end up with me writing fuck over and over at the end of something. And like, it was just, it was so awful. And now you talk about prayer meditation and I'll go and sit on the front porch and spend three hours in the afternoon trying to write this essay and going, oh, wow, this is what it's like to put things together and to craft things and to, to be interested in it and, you, and, and be proud of the product <laughs> as well, opposed to just let me get rid of this and not be to, ashamed of it. To really get to experience presence while you're creating, to really get to experience like, like the, the, that, that Zen place of like being in the stream of creation and letting it flow out and not having that interrupted or encumbered by any booze or alcohol, mm. like not, not having the thing where I'm looking at the screen and I've like, and it's just loaded with typos and I'm thinking, I'll just fix that tomorrow. Like, but to really be present in what I'm doing and to be really be focusing on what I'm doing yeah. and like, presence is where we find freedom as people and as alcoholics, but just people in general, like the thing that causes us the most grief is our fixation on the future and the past and our inability to be in the moment. And when you're in that space of creation and you're sober, it's like the ultimate trip of like absolute presence. You don't always notice it, but every once in a while, I'll just like three or four hours will go by working on a song and I'll just be like, what? I'm so glad I spent the last three or four hours doing that fully invested and in just changing things and pushing beats around and stuff. Like it's a great space to be in. Um, yeah. And you can approach your work in a, in a spirit of service too. And being like, mm. I'm creating this hopefully to put a smile on someone's face, you know, or to, I, even if it's just one person, like, right. Right. Yeah. Um, that's great. I, I wanted to, um, I have a couple more questions. Um, well, one is after three years of sobriety, what is something that you, that you still struggle with today around sobriety, alcoholism, or just anything in general? I struggle with, um, uh, keeping my pr program consistent. Uh, I, I'm one of those, those alcoholics who, I need the drama for me to, to, to buckle down. Mm -hmm. So I will kind of sub, sub subconsciously or consciously step back from my program for days at a time in order to like feel some like agitation and some like, like hopefully I like snap at someone or I like yell at someone or tell someone to fuck off. And then I'm like, okay, okay. <clears throat> I need, I need the drama for me to be like, okay, okay. We're getting, we're, too close to the edge. Let's go back. Let's get into some meetings. Let's make some phone calls. And I wish that I didn't need that. I wish yeah. that I could just know that I'm better off when I'm just working a, a consistent daily program. Yeah. And so I really struggle with consistency. I, I'm a firm believer that you're always moving further away from or closer to a drink. And I'm a drink might be four miles away and I'm only taking baby steps toward it. So it still feels very far away, but I, I do believe that my behavior is always pushing me in one direction or another. Mm -hmm. And, um, I know when I'm working a consistent daily program that I'm moving further away from a drink and I want to be moving further away and putting as much distance between me and a drink as possible because I haven't had a day in the last three years where I was in the store and I saw the, the alcohol aisle and I was like, oh my God, today's the day. I think to get to that day, I need to take a lot of baby steps in the wrong direction. And it would take several days. It would probably take several weeks, maybe months of me not going to meetings and like not yeah. picking up the phone and not uh, engaging in service, not meditating and praying. <clears throat> but like, I can feel that within the first couple of days of not working my program. And, and I kind of like to push the limits of that sometimes. Got and, it. Uh, Got it. Yeah. And so what would you say um, to somebody who's listening to this, who's like, well, it's not for me, or maybe that guy's full of shit or, you know, uh, what kind of advice would you give to somebody who was like, maybe I need to get sober or I'm drinking too much. Uh, someone asked me once, uh, do you think AA is the only way for people to get sober? And I said, no, I said, I, uh, I, 
I, I'm sure there, I, I've met people who have done it other ways. Um, and I know that there are other groups. I just know that it's the only thing that got me sober. It's the only thing that worked for me. Um, and I tried a lot of different things and, uh, and, I'm, and I can't speak for anyone else other than myself. And yeah. I'll also say, I would also say this to people because I've also heard people who go, ah, yeah, like my uncle tried that. It didn't work for him. Or, you know, I, I did that a few years back. It didn't work. Um, I go back to this for atheists people and stuff like this. AA is not magic. It's not, a, it, it's, it's not a bunch of, uh, sometimes it, the spell works on people. Sometimes it doesn't. Everything that all the platitudes, the AA people say are exactly what they mean. One day at a time is exactly what it means. It means you do it every day. And those, those add up to three years, six years, 15 years, 30 years. Um, and then the other thing is it works if you work it. So when people say it didn't work for me, I'm like, well, it works if you do it. It really is that simple. If you go to a meeting <clears throat> every day, or if you wake up every single morning and meditate and pray, and then you call your sponsor, and then at some point during the day, you call one of your fellows in the program and ask them how they're doing, and you do that every single day, I guarantee you, you're going to stay sober. I, I guarantee you, I have never met a person in my life who did those things and was like, I went to a meeting every single day, called my sponsor every single day, found a way to be of service every single day, meditated and prayed every single day, and I still fucking relapse bullshit that doesn't happen that's not a yes. thing it works yeah. if you work it if you do it it works period so work it because you're worth it yeah. is what they say yeah. um yeah. yeah so okay so talk to me a little bit about the music and and the creation and plug where people can find you and and what kind of how do you how do you define yourself describe yourself what is it that you give to the world that i find I, so entertaining i guess i just I used to be all these multi-hyphenate director, choreographer, actor, writer, musician, singer, songwriter. Uh, it's too many things. And mm -hmm. I, I like content creator, I, even though most people associate content creator with just someone who makes videos for YouTube or something. I think content creator is like, um, is as a much more all encompassing thing. And also like artist. Sure. Um, sure. Just person who makes art uh, or, or in, in my case, case a lot of what i make is just content um but people can find my music on apple music or spotify austin archer i've got lots of albums on there uh, i've got music for sale on uh, bandcamp austin archer music.bandcamp.com all this stuff is linked in all of my bios your pal underscore austin on tiktok twitter and instagram is where all of my tiktok stuff is and then the thing that nobody knows about that i'm like trying to get the word out more because uh, I'm finding out more and more that like no one knows it exists is I have a podcast called People Pleaser with Austin Archer. And it's my least consumed piece of content that I produce. Uh, but I had it, no it, idea. Exactly. Yeah, I'll yeah. <laughs> nobody knows that it exists. In fact, I made a video right before you and I got on the phone about how nobody knows that my podcast exists. And um, yeah, it's called People Pleaser. It's, it's not even a, a new podcast. I just uh, posted episode 81 this morning. It's been around for about a year and a half. Uh, talk a lot about sobriety and recovery on that podcast, but also a lot about other things too. So, okay. Yeah. People pleaser. Yeah. Um, well, Austin, thank you so much, man. It was great to meet you and um, hear your story. And um, yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. This was it. very fun. I really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. Our music as always is by Neglect. You can find more of his stuff at neglect.bandcamp.com. And you can find us on all social media platforms that matter, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can reach us at aisforalcoholic at gmail.com. Talk to you later. Yeah. <laughs>